Everybody, welcome. Uh, today we're going to do some book reviews. So these are some book reviews that I've written. Um, I wrote them on Goodreads, but I, I want to uh, spread them far and wide because I think they are deserving of a wider audience. Um, and if you don't use Goodreads, you probably haven't seen. I, I've write, I've written a lot of reviews um, of very differing quality and very differing purpose. Um, we'll, we'll just get right into it. I just kind of found a smattering of, of good ones that I enjoyed for various reasons. And we're going to start with Toy Cemetery by William Johnstone. Um, this is a, a, a horror novel from probably the 80s. Let's see if it tells me here. 1987 by Zebra. By Zabra. Is, any, is there a bra company called Zabra? Like, the bra. Zebra. Um, and, you know, the design on those is easy. Uh, this was a book I read on Kindle. You can find paperbacks, but they're expensive as shit, and I don't recommend doing that. Instead, just get the Kindle. Alright, here we go. What a great big pile of shit. Let's be clear, I fully expected a great big pile of shit. I read it for that specific experience. The first third or so was pretty amazing. Then it almost felt like Johnstone submitted the first third, then got an advance, used it for cocaine, forgot about the whole thing, and the night before it was due, put it all together, shipped it off, and whoever was proofing it was like, fuck it, this is my last day, let's just put the apostrophes mostly in the right places and I'm out of this hellhole. I'm now going to attempt to summarize the plot. Spoilers, I guess? I put a question mark because I'm not sure that I'll be able to reassemble what I read, and because I don't know if telling anyone what happens in this book spoils it, per se. Uh, Jay's aunt dies, so he goes back to Victory, Missouri, to claim an inheritance. His aunt sucked, but I guess Jay was the closest thing she had to an heir. Um, sidebar. I'm not actually sure if the aunt, aunt, I'm gonna call her an aunt from now on, was evil or not evil. Uh, I was very confused. <laughs> Lots of things confused me. That was one of them. Uh, Victory is apparently not a real city, but Missouri has a liberty and a freedom. Uh, just putting that out there. Victory is fucked up. We immediately see a fat guy who's doing something fucked up to a doll that's also sort of alive, and Johnstone tosses in that the guy is basically a child rapist, perhaps. This is page two. Here's what happens in Victory. When the sun goes down, the fog rolls in and everyone starts acting insane. A teen boy just starts jerking off on his front porch. People have sex, even though they probably shouldn't. For example, Jay, our hero, has sex with this young woman, who's 17 or 18, who's the daughter of one of his old townie buddies. I lost track, but I think this particular character gets raped somewhere between two and 8,000 times in the course of the book. Okay, there's also a haunted house filled with living dolls. There are also dolls roaming around the woods. There are three kinds of living dolls in this book, near as I can figure. 
One, porcelain mannequins. These are porcelain human-sized dolls that can walk and talk and shit. Oh, no. <laughs> they can walk and talk and shit. I don't know if they actually take shits. But when they're attacked, they shatter. Also, they're killed with fire, which seems less efficient than the shotguns and pistols everyone is toting. If I've got to destroy a plate, can I use a gun or a fire? Which do I pick? Come on. These dolls are all bad guys and kill people, mostly while their arms are detached from their bodies. These people seem to be sometimes people who used to be real humans, sometimes not, and how they become these porcelain dolls is not explained. Uh, the second type is little evil dolls. All kinds of dolls. Evil. Stabbing people with needles and tiny swords. These are apparently the new bodies of people who lived in liberty. Or no, sorry, victory. This process is not explained. And then we have little not evil dolls. These seem to be identical to little evil dolls, except they're not evil and they want to fight the evil dolls. I'm not entirely sure what the difference is between them and the evil dolls, what makes them not evil, or how the characters would know which dolls are evil and which aren't, other than the not evil dolls being gruesomely mutilated by the evil dolls now and then. They also fly planes and drop firecrackers on the bad guys. <laughs> okay, so Jay comes to town. Evil shit starts happening, especially around roaming packs of teens, which, how can you tell the difference? Dad joke. A blind priest, his former surgeon slash thug assistant, a retired general, a news team, a cop who is named Jim, which was really confusing because we've got a Jim and a Jay, and these characters are not exactly well rendered, and I lost track of the difference. An archery expert, doctor, and some randos fight evil in victory. They can't seem to get police help from outside the city because of reasons. They can't leave the town because also reasons. Jay almost has sex with his daughter while they're both in the fog, but then their cross necklaces click together, yanking Jay out of his fogged-in stupor. But then the next morning, it turns out Jay's lady friend and her daughter had sex at their house. Which, I guess part of the problem here is that there's a shitload of incest going down in Victory, which results in weird monsters somehow. But that doesn't really explain the mother-daughter evil fog tryst, because how do you birth an evil monster from that uh, form of intercourse? There's a part where Jay gets captured and put in a hospital, where he sort of puts together there's an ancient evil of some kind that does something, somehow. It's involved in making the dolls, maybe all three types of dolls, in addition to some other mutants, plus spreading the evil around. Uh, Jay escapes via a clever ruse, also because he punches some guy super hard in the balls, and then gets back to running around with his cronies, shooting stuff, burning stuff, and then sometimes being easily cowed by a group of teens. Can we talk about the sort of dropped subplots in this book? Because there are a lot of them. Toy Factory subplot. There's a toy maker shipping toys all over the world, which I think was supposed to serve as a last-minute pre-credits sort of wink that things aren't really over, but it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, child porn subplot. Apparently the evil one is making child pornography, which is a financial endeavor of some kind. This is very unclear, although I guess it's here because it's one of the evilest things you can do. It doesn't really play into the plot. Uh... The aunt subplot. I don't know, she's like a ghost, and they burn her house down, a bunch of dolls live there, but some are evil and some aren't. Super confusing. The news as subplot. A news team shows up at some point to sort of help with things and show the world what's going on. Doesn't go anywhere. 
the Dollmaker subplot. I could be wrong. I read this kind of fast, but I don't know if the evil fat Dollmaker ever gets his, escapes, or what. He seems like the sub-villain. The one we're supposed to think is the villain, but then he isn't. But I think he just kind of vanishes from the book. The Satanists subplot. These guys meet in a church and talk cryptically about the Dark One or the Evil One or whatever. They turn the cross upside down while they meet. I'm not really sure why they're meeting in secret, having an orgy at one point, when everyone in the entire city is part of the craziness. Why the cloak and dagger? Everyone you know is in on it. There's no reason to hide it. The time subplot. Jay figures out that something is happening regarding time, and that by disrupting this, he can accomplish something. So he blasts a clock to pieces, which solves the problem, whatever it is, briefly catapults our characters back in time to the 20s or so, then that just sort of resolves itself and the time distortion is over. Although everything seems exactly the same following the resolution of this problem. Shrug. Uh, teens. There's a group of evil teens. Which it turns out Jay's daughter is one of them. He tries to kill her a couple times, which you would think would be kind of a big deal, but it's not. There's a bunch of mayhem, which is the best shit, and then a twist when it turns out some of the good guys are actually bad guys, and the whole anticlimax ends with Jay stabbing an old man in the dump, which apparently ends the curse. I have, I think, three criteria for enjoying shitty shit. One, I have to be able to follow it generally. It doesn't have to be an amazing plot, but I like to know what's going on from moment to moment. Two, it can't be intentionally shitty. Sharknado is my prime example. When someone makes something shitty on purpose, I'm not into it. Three, it's got to have some real crazy nonsense that takes things too far in one aspect or another. This book definitely has two out of three. It's got some real crazy, and I think it's sincere, but it was just so damn hard to follow, and it was like Johnstone had a chance to write one book, so he threw in everything which is insane as he wrote 25 horror novels in like 10 years. I'm torn on it. If you, like me, sometimes enjoy getting loaded and reading at a bar, this is perfect. If you, like me, also kind of hate working really hard to follow something you shouldn't give a wet fart about, this is very much imperfect. Mixed bag? Yeah. Hopefully I won't be thinking of the time I spent reading this when I'm looking back on my life. I guess that means on my deathbed, right? So there you go, that's Toy Cemetery. Uh, let's move on to something more classic. Uh, the Scarlet Letter. One of my more popular reviews on the Goodreads. This is um, 10 years old at this point. So I have no idea what this says. Let's, let's take a look. It's great to finally get back to the classics. It's been far too long since I read a book with careful intensity noting throwaway lines that are likely to show up on a multiple-choice or short-answer test that misses the main themes of a book entirely, while managing to ask lots of questions like, in the fourth chapter, what kind of shoes was the character you don't even remember wearing? I was thinking maybe it would be nice to read a book like this without worrying about that stuff, just absorbing it for what it was and then moving on through my life drunk. Wrong, 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 wrong. It's hard to know where to start with this thing. The prose itself is almost unreadable. Let me give you an example of what a sentence in this book looks like. A man, who was born in a small town, which bore no resemblance to the town his parents imagined for him when they settled in the area over 40 years ago with every intention of starting a small business selling gift baskets online that sort of petered out 
After bigger companies like FTD caught on to the whole thing and ran the little guys out with predatory pricing, decided to go for a walk one day. I shit you not, whenever I saw a dash, I'd skip down to find the second dash and usually managed to cruise through half a page to find the relevant piece where the prose picked up again. Word on the street is that Hawthorne, who published the book in 1850, actually wrote it to seem even more old-timey than it was, which is pretty goddamn old-timey at this point. As far as I can tell, writing old-timey means, one, describing furniture and clothing in such exhaustive detail that royal wedding coverage appears shabby and underdeveloped, two, using commas wherever the fuck you feel like it, and three, structuring the plot in such a way that you already know everything that's going to happen way before it does. Let's talk plot while we're on the topic. The plot is like Dynasty with all the juicy bits pulled out. I'm serious. All events could be summed up by a video of a guy sitting in front of a sign that says banging people isn't so bad and winking from time to time. One of the characters is damned, and as she walks through the forest, the bits of light that dot the trail through the canopy of trees literally vanish before she can walk into them. Now this would be fine in a book where the damned character was in the woods, say, leading an army of orcs. But in a book where the sexual and social mores of Puritan society are called into question, it kind of overdoes everything and kills the mood. So it all begs the question, what the fuck is going on with these classics? The Scarlet Letter, according to a recent study, is the sixth most taught book in American high schools. It's very popular, and you can hardly enter a Barnes & Noble without seeing a new version with such awesome cover art that it almost tricks you into buying it. I have a frequent argument with my brother regarding what makes things, movies, books, whatever, great. To him, for example, a movie might be great because it's the first movie to usher in a new era of filmmaking, really redefining an era while paying a loving homage to the past. Context is important to him, and reading the stuff on the IMDb page is part of the movie experience for him. For me, I don't really give a shit about context. Knowing that Hawthorne had certain feelings about Puritanism based on his ancestry doesn't really matter much to me. Finding out that the main character was based loosely on the author's wife doesn't really do a whole lot. In other words, I demand to be entertained on at least some level, and if the level of entertainment doesn't spur me on to dig deeper, I think that's a failure of the art and not an example of my own laziness contributing to my dislike of the art in question. Furthermore, when the prose is too challenging, I am constantly thinking, this is a book I am reading and here is the next line of this book. I'm not at all swept up in the narrative and therefore don't enjoy it nearly as much. I like to think of books as being like magicians. Take a David Copperfield, the magician, not the book. His shtick is to do some amazing tricks that appear effortless on his part, which is why they are, well, magical. David Blaine, on the other hand, performs feats that do not appear effortless whatsoever, and therefore far less magical. It takes a great writer to write a great book. It takes an even better writer to write a great book that appears nearly effortless. One might accuse me of really rarely reading challenging books, and maybe it's true. I find myself drawn to books that compel me to finish them as opposed to those that I feel I have to slog through while other books are sitting in growing piles around my apartment. Calling out to me with their promises of genuine laughs, heartbreak that is relevant to me, and prose that doesn't challenge me to the point that it's more of a barrier to the story than anything. Perhaps most telling, at the book club meeting where we were discussing this last night, an older lady asked a pretty decent question. Why is this considered a classic? There are two answers. One is uh, what the Everyman Library will tell you, and one is an answer that I will tell you. Everyman would say that the book is a classic because it is an excellent snapshot of a historical period. 
an historical period. It has a narrative set within a framework that allows us to better understand our roots as Americans. The issues of people's perceptions of women and rights of women are still very alive today. Overall, it gives us a chance to examine our own society through the lens of fiction, therefore reframing the conversation to make it less personal and easier to examine without bias, blah, blah, blah. I would say it's a classic because it was one of the more palatable books that came out during the period when classics were made. I would also point out that the canonized classics are never revised. We never go back and say which books maybe have less to say about our lives than they used to, or which might still be relevant, but have been usurped by something that is closer to the lives we live today. I would also say that it continues to be taught in schools because the kind of people who end up teaching high school English are most often people who have a deep and abiding respect for these types of books and identified with these types of books at around that time in their lives. I think there are a lot of people out there who never like these books, and rather than making their voices heard about what they think people should read, they just drop out of the world of books altogether. My point is that I think this is a bad book. It's got low readability, even for adults, the plot is melodramatic, the characters are single-dimensional crap, the women being constant victims of the time and the men being weak examples of humanity. Also, a very serious story is halted in places where we are expected to believe that magic letter A's pop up in the sky like you might see in an episode of Sesame Street. It must have been a very exciting book in its time, without a doubt based on its sales. And if this kind of book is your thing, good for you. I don't begrudge you your joy. It's just not a book that I would ever dream of foisting on someone else, nor would I recommend reading it unless you are absolutely required. Alright, let's, let's change gears drastically. This is a uh, review of Superman vs. Muhammad Ali, which was a comic book released in 1978. Kind of like a time period kind of today. Um, where Superman fights Muhammad Ali. The way I chose to review this was an after-action letter written by Batman to Superman. Um, so here we go. Superman. After reviewing the after-action report collected in this volume, I have to make some critical points about how to handle these situations better in the future. But before I go on, I do want to express how extremely disappointed I am in you and your lack of forethought. You are better than this. The proposition set forth by Invading Aliens, one that involves an Earth champion fighting their champion to decide the fate of the Earth, is not within your control. Also, Muhammad Ali being in the area when this proposition was made is also not within your control. I understand this, however, the moment the challenge was made, the ball was in your court, and you threw up a brick that could have kept a hundred little piggies safe from just about any wolf, with the possible exception of the Minnesota Timberwolves, whose rebounding is incredible this season. Those guys are playing out of their heads. According to what I saw, the alien gave you 24 hours to prepare for battle. However, Ali claimed that he should be the one to represent Earth, the reason being that the alien homeworld, where the fight would take place, is lit by a red sun, the exact thing that takes away your superpowers and makes you a mortal man and nothing more. Okay, for starters, you have about three weaknesses and you need to stop broadcasting them. Muhammad Ali does not need to know that you are easily killed when exposed to Red Sun. Not that he would have much chance to get a hold of some, except when you took him to your secret fortress and sparred with him under a light bulb that mimics Red Sun. This is a completely unnecessary risk. Also, stop keeping things around that can kill you. 
If there are things that can kill you, focus on eliminating those three things, not stashing them away in a glass candy dish like an old bitch who lost her love on the Titanic. So, using some time-slowing device, you and Ali had a couple of weeks to prepare for the fight. He trained you to the best of his ability, and then the two of you fought under the red sun before the main event, Earth's Champion versus the Alien Champion. Clark, I don't need to tell you more than once that fighting two people back-to-back -back is not done in boxing. It is just not done. Even though Ali bested you, the energy he spent knocking your ass around the ring a few rounds would have been better spent on the real enemy. Not a wise move. Secondly, if the alien race wanted to create an honorable boxing match, as they claim, how does it work that their champion weighs 8,000 pounds while ours is floating around 200? I know you probably don't take in much boxing, but this is completely unorthodox, and you allowing Ali to enter such a mismatched fight is putting him at a high level of risk that is completely unacceptable. Next time, why not just have Jimmy Olsen fight, I don't know, the Anti-Monitor? A guy who takes pictures against a guy who absorbs universes. Hey, that sounds like a good match. Now, I understand that you're a feel-good guy, and learning about races and creeds coming together to defeat a common foe was really nice. But for the love of God, you let Ali figure out your secret identity? Unfortunately, this is not a situation that can be allowed to stand. I will be forced to pay a little visit to Ali and slip him a memory-erasing drug, which will hopefully wipe this entire alien adventure from his mind. It is my sincerest hope that there are no lasting, debilitating effects, but if there are, know that they are on your head. The secret of your alter ego is too important to be known to any man, regardless of his ability to punch other men without being punched by them as much. You need to start taking more responsibility for your actions and the actions of those you should be protecting. Yours in Christ, Batman. Yikes. That ending is rough, huh? Uh, let's see... Here's one I read for a middle school book club. It was called The Limit. Um, basically what this is about is uh, kids can be kind of indentured servants so that they, they work at like a work camp kind of thing um, and their parents spend all the money because, you know, this is like a world where credit's gone out of control or something. And so for some reason... Uh, they've decided, you know, the way we could fix credit being out of control is having kids work and then people can pay back their debt. Um, here we go. I read this for a middle school book club. It's worth noting that they love it. Uh, for a grown-up, I don't know. There's a scene towards the end where the main character foils the main bad guy's escape attempt by precision shooting basketballs through the roof of some sort of helicopter. Somehow this keeps the bad guy so off balance that she can't fly a helicopter. Imagine, if you will, that a Papa Shot game from Chuck E. Cheese, but set to Michael Bay music and Michael Bay visuals of helicopters taking off from a roof. This is always an awkward part of media for younger audiences. A boy of 15 has to physically stop a woman criminal from escaping, but nobody's about to write a scene where he stabs her in the jugular with a box cutter. They always have to figure out a way for the kid to stop her using a Nerf gun or fart powder or something like that. Sort of like Home Alone. Which is always baffling, because given the option between being shot or crushed by a massive rolling tool chest, I might have to opt for the shooting. Or climbing a rope and being suspended three stories in the air as the bottom end of the rope is lit on fire? Screw that. Home Alone is an early predecessor to Saw, no doubt. Also, sometimes these kids are a little overly nice to their parents. 
In this book, if your parents overspend, the government stops by and takes you to a workhouse, basically an office version of a labor camp. So not all that different from what most adults do now, but I digress. So this kid gets taken to the labor camp, and meanwhile his idiot parents continue to spend money and go deeper into debt? What the hell? And, and, near the end of the book, the mom is really hounding for an attaboy when she says how she managed to not buy a new dress. Wow, thanks mom. A few more weeks of this and I might be able to leave the forced labor camp where they may or may not be doing weird experiments on my brain. Swell. Um, here's one called Vertical Run by Joseph Garber. This is from 1995. Okay, spoiler alert. Trans gangs, deadly viruses, and Vietnam flashbacks. Vertical Run has it all. But as we've learned from Universal Soldier 2 and Jane Eyre alike, guns and trans gangs aren't always enough to fill that plot-shaped hole. And this is holier than the Swiss cheese the Pope used to hit Jews with back in his youth. This was when we had that uh, Nazi-esque Pope. <laughs> Our basic story goes like this. Dave Elliott goes into work. It's just an average day until his boss tries to shoot him in the back of the head and a group of goons tries over and over to kill him while he plays hide-and-seek in his office building. So pretty much like Die Hard, right? No, not right, not right at all. For example, let's just play the imagination game for a second. Imagine that you're a mercenary, a hired thug who has braved the jungles of Da Nang and the deserts of somewhere else Asian that we hated. Now imagine that your job is to kill an ex-Special Forces dude who works in a functioning and fully staffed office building. Your principal advantage is that he has no idea that anyone is out to kill him. You have the full authority and the government behind you and all of its resources. Take 30 seconds and come up with a plan to kill Mr. Elliot. What did you decide? To get a cop uniform and take him out of the building and shoot him in an alley? To have an agent dress as a hobo and knife him in, on his morning jog? Or did you decide, like Ransom, the principal bad guy, to hand the job over to Elliot's elderly boss? If you did, you're fired from imaginary government. All of this aside, let's take a moment to compare a key diehard element. If you recall Bruce Willis when he has the chance to make a quick quip to the baddie, came up with the simple yet effective yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. What is Elliot's version? Up your poop with an ice cream scoop. Yeah, for real. And what about characters? The female lead is Marge. Her real name is Marigold Fields, but she prefers Marge. Let's demonstrate her first encounter with Elliot from her point of view, as imagined by yours truly. I was in this computer room with my boss. He's a jerk and he was hitting on me, saying that sleeping with him was the only way I was getting anywhere in the company. He was persistent, but I was holding my own. Then this psycho comes out of, from the floor, beats the holy hell out of him. I guess I was supposed to be happy about that. He keeps staring into my eyes like he was in love or something. He managed to convince me that he was in trouble and needed help, so I agreed to help him out with his needlessly complicated plan. Once I agreed, he said I would need an alibi, and then punched me in the face and knocked me out. What an ass. After that, Dave makes his escape from the building. Marge goes home, but shortly thereafter, a visitor comes knocking on her door. For some reason, the bad guys come to her house. And for some reason, they are dressed as cops. Now you figure it out, huh? And for some reason, they try to convince her that she was raped while she was out cold. And for some reason, even though she turns it down, for some reason they give her a forced gynecological exam of some kind. 
And for some reason, even though this would surely be the most horrifying experience of most women's lives, for some reason she is awfully sexually inviting to Elliot when he comes back to her house after knocking her out. Oh, and stealing the cash from her wallet for some reason. I know this is getting very blow by blow, but bear with me, it's worth it, I promise you. Out in the streets of New York, Elliot changes his appearance by bleaching his hair and combing it forward. A change that inexplicably makes everyone assume he is gay. Super gay. In the span of five pages, he is called Cupcake, Fruit, Pixie, and Three Dollar Bill. He appears so gay, in fact, that a trans prostitute refuses to believe that he doesn't want her services. Things escalate quickly, and Elliot soon finds himself surrounded by a gang of trans folks trying to kill him. I'm going to stop here for a quest for a second. This should be the best book ever. I don't know why someone isn't attacked by a gang of trans prostitutes in every book, but it's just not the world we live in. But if you found a way to wheel it in, don't let me down. Don't you let me down. This isn't a plot device you can toy with. This isn't a magic stone or some kind of elf or a wacky neighbor. This is a gang with straight razors. A prostitute gang with straight razors. Get it together. Um, by the way... I didn't even get into it in the review, but the math on like, okay, wait, a trans woman prostitute and a gay man, the math doesn't add up there, but okay. The thing is, we can't do the math on this book. Um, if you do the math on this book, you'll be here all fucking day and you'll have spent the whole day on vertical run. The most frustrating part of this book, besides everything, is that it was so full of missed opportunities. There's a brief period where Elliot is unsure whether he is experiencing things realistically or just having flashbacks, an interesting idea that is trashed right away. There's the idea of companies and government in bed together, an idea that would have been very ahead of its time, but they never bother with that either. And of course, there's a violent trans mob. I'm sorry, I'm just not over it yet. That's most of what I want to say about the book. Oh, except for it seemed like it was redeeming itself in the last 20 pages or so, only to completely screw itself over again. Not as bad as it was all a dream, but about as close as I care to get. Overall, Vertical Run was a lot like the onion that fell behind my microwave. Never really great in its own right, signifying potential, and only what gets worse as it ages. Alright. <laughs> Vertical Run. Um, here's one for Mega Man 2. This is from Nintendo Worlds of Power by FX9, which we'll get into shortly. Uh, let me start with something that kind of blew my mind. All these Nintendo books were a Seth Godin joint. Yeah, that Seth Godin, the linchpin guy. Don't be fooled from what I'm reading. Godin didn't actually pen this one. All the Worlds of Power books were written under the pen name FX9, which was a name used by a collection of authors. This one belongs squarely to Ellen Miles, who appears to be primarily a writer of children's books about puppies. Now let me talk about something that pissed me the hell off. This book has Mega Man 2 tips in it at the end of some chapters, which seems awesome and in a pre-internet age would have been helpful. However, these tips are bullshit. I don't want to get all nerdy and talk continuity errors in the megaverse here, but one tip tells players that beating the levels in the game, same order as they're written about equals success. This is a whole thing in Mega Man. You can pick the order you fight the other evil robots, and then use their powers to fight other evil robots. So I get a buzzsaw, see a guy who looks like a big tree, and that seems pretty simple. 
The problem, I looked at quite a few different orders you could use to beat the game, and none matched the one in this book. Now, at first I thought it was so cool that the book contained this secret. Maybe a good trick to get a kid to read. But you make the kid read, then punish the little dweeb with bad information? For shame. Uh, here's a guide with six ways to go about it, all different from the one laid out in the book. There's also this subplot where Mega Man has somehow been turned human, which doesn't make sense and also has no effect. He still drinks energy tanks, whatever the hell those are, and still has all his robobilities. It reminds me a little of the Japanese kid who drank gasoline in order to become a transformer. I wondered why the house smelled like petrol, his father said. Jesus. Okay, all that aside, my least favorite part was that Mega Man had to make with a terrible pun every time he beat a bad guy. I guess you're hot, all hot air, air man, and stuff like that. In honor of this great achievement, and because I don't like to complain about things without taking a stab myself, here's my puns for all the robot masters. Airman. Looks like you got blowed, Airman. Aquaman. Aquaman? More like Aquaman, all one word. The comic character people love to hate. Astro-man. Maybe you should call yourself Astro-boy. Wait, no, he's an awesome robot. Scratch that, you suck. Blade-man. I guess you're not cut out for this gig. Blizzard-man. You're a blizzard, I'm the snowplow. Boom. Bomb-man. I'd say I'm the bomb now, idiot. <laughs> Bright-man. Not so bright without a head and hard-earned robot consciousness, are you? Bubble-man. You just got popped, son. Burner Man. Stick to warming up Hamburger Helper for the lonely Burner Man. For the lonely, comma, Burner Man. Burst Man. Pardon you while you burst. Centaur Man. <laughs> oh God, why even bother? Charge Man. Now I'm in charge. Chill Man. The heat is on. Your face, which I'm shooting with a gun. Cloud Man. Uh, Mega Man shoots his head off, which goes flying. He always had his head in the clouds. Clown man. Joke's on you. Cold man. It's about to be a cold day in hell. Commando man. The only thing you're in command of is your own explosion. Concrete man. Hit the bricks. Crash man. You've just been bandicooted. Crystal man. Lose to crystal? Not even once. Cut man. Maybe console yourself with self-harm. Oof, that's dark. Dive man. Take the V out and it's, your name is more accurate. Drill man. More like mandrill. A monkey. You, sir, are a monkey. Dust man. When you get to hell, tell Dyson I sent you. Dynamo man. Quit dynamoning and die already. Elec man. Your life, like your name, has been shortened in a real weird way. Fireman. Extinguished. Flame Man. Extinguished. Hell, he wasn't there for the Fireman thing. I can use it twice. Flash Man. You've been flushed. Oh, it's Flash Man? Eh, still works. Freeze Man. You've just been put in the defroster, a.k.a. porch. Frost Man. Balls. Should have looked ahead before that frost line. Galaxy Man. Where's your guardians now? Gemini Man. Prepare to be Capricorned. Gravity Man. What goes up must come exploded. Grenade Man. Somebody pulled your pin. Ground Man. You're grounded. Guts Man. Sorry to spill your guts. That's gross. 
Gyro Man. Is it like Gyro Man? Like the sandwich? Hard Man. Looks like someone went limp. Heat Man. Jesus, how many fucking fire guys are there? Hornet Man. Go back to Charlotte and Aqua Starter Jackets where you belong. Ice Man. Hey, chill. Chill out. Stay cool. No, nothing. Jewel Man. Here's how five months blasting can last your whole death. Junk Man. I guess you should have left that junk in the trunk. Nightman. Sorry to get medieval. Magic Man. Say the magic words. Hocus blow up a kiss. Magma Man. That's uncomfortably close to Mega Man somehow. I'm glad you're not alive now. Magnet Man. A very polarizing figure. Metal Man. Metal's dead, man. Napalm Man. <laughs> Nothing like the smell of no Napalm Man alive in the morning. Needle Man. This one's all sewn up. Nitro Man. You sound like an energy drink. Sounded. Sorry, you're dead. It's past tense. Oil Man. You've been greased. Pharaoh Man. Enjoy an eternity of rest with this charred cat. Pirate Man. Swashed his buckle. Plant Man. Maybe you should have made better plants. Like plans, but with a T. Plug Man. Like my favorite televised Nirvana concert, you've been unplugged. Pump Man. Next time you'll watch where you're pumping. Quick Man. One Minute Man is right. Ring Man. More like Sea Ring Man. Search Man. Looks like I seeked and destroyed. Is there a Grammar Man coming? I hope not. Shade Man. Lights out. Wait, on. Shadow Man. You're a puppet now. Of a friend of mine. Perhaps you've heard of him? The Grim Reaper? What? Sheep Man. You followed me to your doom. Skull Man. I got through that thick skull of yours. Slash Man. Every rose has its thorn. Snake Man. I rattled his cage. Solar Man. You should have begged for your life. Spark Man. In the end, you just fizzled out. Splash Woman. Just a splash in the, in the pan. Apparently I'm eating my enemies now. God, what have I become? Spring Man. Spring has sprung. Star Man. Just like a real star, you've been dead for ages already. Stone Man. Come together with your hands. Save me. Strike Man. I 710 split this fool in half. Sword Man. The sword is back in the stone. Or more accurately, this dude's groin. Tengu Man. Tengu un dia terrible. Time man. <laughs> it's time you blowed up. Toad man. There he goes, warts and all. Tomahawk man. Luckily I fought diseased blanket man first. Top man. Bottom man. Tornado man. You've just been Bill Paxton. Turbo man. More like turdo man. Wave man. Wave, bye-bye. Wind man. I knew you'd always wind up dead. And if it's wind as in blowing, you should have been more specific. Wood man. Who put the wood to who this time? Yamato man. Uh, eat shit. That was 86, by the way. Of them. Uh, well, I think we did it. I think, I think, I feel with that, you know, we've reached a success that, uh, is not, not to be trifled with further. Thanks for listening, everybody. 
Um, I hope you enjoyed those reviews. Uh, if you're a Goodreads user, you know, find me over there. If you're not, man, I don't know. I would tell you to get on there because it's fun, but really the internet's not about fun anymore, is it? Except for this show. This is the only exception to that rule. The rest of it's bullshit. See you next time for the one thing that's not bullshit. <laughs>